0: When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet.
1: Cards, savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com.
0: Nerdwallet, finance smarter.
1: As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So, How do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors. But if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Take control of your investments and secure a stable 8% annual return today. Visit pinefinancialgroup.com slash biggerpockets to learn more about the fund. That's pinefinancialgroup.com slash biggerpockets. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging
2: Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, the FinCon bonus edition, where we interview Zena Kumar. It's time for a new
1: American dream, one that doesn't involve working in a cubicle for 40 years, barely scraping by. Whether you're looking to get your financial house in order, invest the money you already have, or discover new paths
2: for wealth creation, you're in the right place. This show is for anyone who has money or
0: wants more. This is the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast.
2: I'm Scott Trench, and I'm here with my co host, Miss Mindy Jensen. How are you doing today, Mindy?
1: Scott, I am doing fantastic.
2: Should we get right to it and bring Zena in and talk about money?
1: We should do it right away. We should do it quick because we only have a 20-minute spot today. We're getting ready to go to the keynotes, but we stopped Zena in the hallway to talk to her. Zena, how's it going? I am having a great time. A little tired, I think, as we all are, but learning a lot and hanging out with a lot of fun
3: people.
2: Yeah, awesome. Well, let's get right into it, Zena, Can you walk us through maybe the the foundation of your your journey with money? Kind of where would you start Where would you say that your journey with money begins?
3: I was born in no. Um That's I, my line. Really? I was born
1: in a small town.
3: <laughs> I was not born in a small town. No, but my parents were always uh, I mean really like as a kid, they always talked about money. They got into credit card debt and they felt like no one had really given them a financial education because they immigrated here from Ukraine um, when I was a little kid. And I think they were, they just really wanted to impart that to me. So I always grew like, I remember listening to Dave Ramsey as a kid on the radio, and I always found it really, really intriguing when he would talk about, you know, someone would call in and say, I have credit card debt, I've got a mortgage, I've got, you know, a tax lien or something. And he would create a simple plan to help him get out of debt. And he was just very reassuring and that always captivated me. And then when I graduated college, I had student loans and I'd never had debt before. You know, I didn't have a car loan or anything like that. And I just hated the feeling of being in debt. I knew I should have been saving for retirement, saving for an emergency fund. But I felt like, okay, I have all these loans to pay back. And I just, I really felt the physical weight of it. So I started a blog about trying to pay off my student loans in three years.
2: Awesome. You know, one thing that I, uh, I don't know why this is coming to mind, but I know that your parents are are Ukrainian or Russian ancestry, right? The Millionaire Next Door actually talks, was published around the night in the 1990s. Oh, really? And they mentioned that their folks of Russian descent were some of the wealthiest demographic in the the United States. So I, I was wondering if there's like any cultural things that were around, you know, good financial habits that you maybe noticed in the community or of parents, friends, those kinds of things.
3: I think a lot of it probably was is that if you came over, if you were lucky enough to come over, you probably had a really strong education. Mm-hmm. You were probably coming from a professional background. Yep. So my mom has a master's in nuclear physics. My dad is a typical uh, software programmer. Um, and then my mom got her CBA when we were here. And I think just from what I seen to their friends, it was just like doctors and lawyers and engineers, um, just professional people coming over and, you know, English is hard to learn, but if they learned it, then they could, yeah, they could set up a good life and make a good living here.
2: Awesome. Yeah. I don't know why that, that point flew into my head, but I just wanted to kind of talk about that. So let's talk about what you kind of did to pay down the debt
1: over those three years. And what kind of debt are we talking about? Just student loans. Well, how much?
3: Uh, 24,000 in principal. And I think it ended up being 28 with interest when I paid
1: it off. Okay. So you just won the lottery?
3: I wish. Um, no, I mean, I, I wish I was more interesting. It
1: was the typical... <laughs> this is going to be boring Then I wish you were more interesting too.
3: <laughs> well, it's funny because uh, at one point, a story about me paying off my student loans got picked up by Time and um, they posted it on their Facebook page and it went viral. And you know, you get the dumb comments like, she probably sold drugs. And I think drug dealers like make way, make way more than $30,000. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I don't know if you take the risk if you're only making that much, which is about how much I was paying when I was started paying off my student loans. I was a newspaper reporter making twenty eight grand a year, and then at the end of my student loan journey, I was making like thirty one grand. I never made more than that. I was living in Indiana, which is a low cost of living city. For two years, I paid rent by myself, and my rent was like thirty percent of my take home pay, so pretty high. So I just did the typical things of like. Anytime I got extra money, you know, like visit your parents that give you like this, if you 100 bucks, immediately toward my loans. Um, if I got like a birthday check toward my loans, you know, I was very much like, oh, I don't need anything, just give me cash. I'm gonna pay off my loans with that. Um, <laughs> I remember one time my in laws gave me like money for a trip I was going on, and they said, like, we want you to use this for the trip to enhance your experience. Don't use this on your student loans. And then I did. And, um, maybe if they listen to this, they'll find out, (laughs) (laughs) but it was a lot of, you know, I learned how to budget and I had probably not like a shopping addiction in college, but if I was bored, if I was feeling sad or anxious, I would, yeah, I mean, just walk out the door and go shopping. And my friends would always tease me about the size of my closet. Um, like my drawers were just stuffed things that had tags on them or that I'd worn only a couple of times. I mean um, I flew back from a study abroad trip and I had to pay an uh, overage fee on my luggage because I just spent so much money there. When I interned in New York, I remember at one point I was eating out three times a day. So, really, a lot of emotional spending going on.
2: Wait, wait, what? In the three years where you're paying this off, though, you were extremely frugal living yes. in Indiana, right? So, you know, because if you're saying your your average income those years is less than $30,000, that means that you're living off of $20,000 in cash or less to get through that, right? Yeah. So what does that look like? What's your rent? How are you getting around transportation-wise?
3: So I was lucky. My parents had a, you know, they'd given me a car when I was in college. So I didn't have an auto loan, which is really nice. Um, so my rent, I believe, was 550 that first year I was paying off my student loans. And then it was uh, 625, so a decent chunk of my take-home pay. Like I think it was around 30%. The first year I wasn't saving anything for retirement, but I was trying to build up an emergency fund. So I think I had probably like 5,000 stashed away in an emergency fund. Oh wow! That was solely built from the ground up. Like I remember starting my first job and like borrowing money from my parents for the security deposit of my apartment. And it's funny because I was spending a lot on probably 200 a month on gas because I was visiting my boyfriend every weekend in a different city. And that's when gas was $4 a gallon. But except for that, like I didn't buy beer. I didn't go out. I didn't go out to eat. Um, I tried to spend like 150 a month on groceries. If I bought makeup, it was from a drugstore. I stopped going to Sephora. If I bought clothes, it was from Goodwill or a thrift store. Um, you know, really trying to be lean, um, in in that way, and, and going to the library instead of going to the bookstore. Just really, really cutting back.
0: What What about
2: when you? So you know, after a couple of years, you got to zero. Yeah. So first of all, how'd that feel? What was the, What was your emotional experience, kind of getting, going through the final you
0: stages? Know,
3: there's a Jim Carrey quote: "I wish everyone could become rich and famous so they could see that their problems wouldn't go away." I thought being debt-free would relieve my financial anxiety, and it didn't because suddenly I realized I'm 25 and I don't really have much saved for retirement. I'm behind in saving for retirement, which some people would say, well, now you've paid off your loans, and my loans were at 6.8% interest. That's a good return to get. But I now suddenly it was, oh, I need to catch up for retirement, so I had an anxiety about that, so... I wish I could say it was this momentous feeling and I was proud of myself, but suddenly I thought, Oh, okay. Now if I want to save, you know, 10, 15% of my salary for retirement, you know, I have to catch up really quickly to do that. So I think that's the dirty truth about achieving any financial goal is that if you think it's going to make you feel more secure or more stable in your life, I mean, I've talked to plenty of people here at FinCon who make way more than I do. And they're still looking at a $6 bottle of water like, oh,
1: that's crazy. Well, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> I went out to breakfast yesterday with somebody and I wasn't that hungry. And he's like, well, let me buy you breakfast. I'm like, well, I don't want $18 worth of a buffet. Yeah. He's oh, like, I do. Well, well yeah, <laughs> Scott could eat. <laughs> Growing boy. Yes. yes. <laughs> Scott could eat 12 times that. But no, it's. And I can't spend that. He's like, well, I'll just put it on my expense account. I'm like, I can't have you. I, I could put it on my expense account too. I'm just not going to because that's $18. That's like a whole day's worth of groceries. Yeah. That's So I totally get that. Um, you should know though, that at age 25, having $0 in debt and also zero saved for retirement puts you like in the top 10% of 25 year olds. I mean, it's not like you were doing a bad job having nothing saved. You know what's crazy
3: though is like when you see the stats of like how many Americans have less than four hundred dollars in liquid assets to to or for you know for an emergency fund or how many Americans have twenty thousand dollars or less for retirement. And I think we're all doing bad. Everyone is messing up right now. Like yes just because you're in the top five percent, it doesn't mean that you're doing enough. And that's what is so scary when you look at the numbers. It's it's almost terrifying. Like, I have friends who I think, oh, yeah, you seem to be responsible. And then they tell me numbers. And then, oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so it, it's, it's so rare to find someone who's doing all of the right things. Well, how do you know? Your parents came over here. Your mom's, what is she, a nuclear physicist? So she ended up getting her accountant degree because, surprised, they weren't hiring nuclear physicists
1: from the Soviet Union at that time. Wow. So she's a nuclear physicist. The last I checked, you have to be remotely smart to be a nuclear physicist. CPA exam is kind of difficult to pass. Very difficult. From what I've heard, I haven't passed it myself. Um, So your mom sounds like a smart person. Very smart. And what was your dad? A software engineer? Yeah. Also a, a field not actively hiring idiots. So, <laughs> you know, there's there's some intelligence there. And they came into America and immediately went into debt, you said. And that's... Because, because people maybe told them, oh, you need to buy that? Put it on a credit card. Well, yeah, Don't worry about it. They don't know about money either. Yeah. They haven't been taught it.
3: We and now they're, they're they've it been a, done a very good job of playing catch up these last, I would say... 20 years that they've like real, you know, gotten out of debt and like really, really ramped up retirement plan to retire early, um, which they can do because they have good paying jobs, but it's, it's kind of scary when you look around and you see, Oh, there are, I mean, how many articles do we read? Like save this amount for retirement, save this in the emergency fund, save money to fix your car. If it breaks down or have enough to pay part of your health care deductible. And then you think, Oh gosh, like, how many of us are actually doing most of the things
2: we should be? Yeah. And I think you can, you know, what is what you should be doing, right? Well, there's no benchmark. There's no milestone. But the closest we can maybe get to that kind of like, what should we be doing is a high savings rate, mm-hmm. which you had, right? Yeah. Even in spite of a fairly low income, you had a high savings rate. And I assume that I presume that you continue to have that high savings rate. And that you're beginning to deploy that in various in wealth building aspects. Is that right?
3: You know, what's funny is some people said I should move to Denver. I'm looking you at the should. two of you. I moved to Denver. Denver's a great <laughs> place. Okay. When I, the last year I was paying off my student loans, my rent was $266 a month. In Denver? In Indy. In oh. Indianapolis. I was going to say, where did you get a place in Denver for 266 Probably on the street. Yes, you could get. You
2: expensive. should have stayed in Indianapolis.
3: My, I did the math <laughs> one day. I lived in Denver for three years, and I did the math. Like, what if I had stayed in that in that cheap apartment, um, and I had roommates? I s- spent thirty five thousand dollars in rent. Yeah, I spent more in rent.
1: What if three years ago, Scott, she would have bought a property in Denver? You would have made more than thirty five thousand dollars, but. We're not here to bash yeah. you about not buying real estate, but you should totally buy real estate.
3: I just bought my first house.
1: Oh, you did? About? Yeah. You didn't tell me this. Tell me about your I house. Did t- I did tell you. You weren't listening. listening. Okay, okay well, maybe I wasn't I told listening. Carl. Tell me now. <laughs> Carl does not tell me anything.
3: Okay, I just I just bought my first house. Yay! Uh, not as a, just like for my own. Like not as a not to house hack or anything yeah. like yeah. what you do. Still. No one
1: send me mean comments. Anybody sends you mean comments, you forward them to me and I will send them mean notes back. (laughs) This is great. Do you or do you not need a place to live? I do. Yes. And now I own it.
3: Yes. (laughs) And my neighborhood is, it's not like scary gentrifying, but it's, we can see like things are getting put in. The people that we bought it from, and I should have bought three years ago in Indy. They only lived there for two years and they made $40,000 more. They bought it for one
1: hundred and forty. We bought
2: it at one hundred and eighty. Oh
1: wow! So there's appreciation, and Indianapolis is a That's great. That's a huge appreciation for two years. Mm-hmm. For two years, forty thousand dollars is nice. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's not Denver.
2: Well, I will say that you know you lived in Denver for a couple of years, but it seems like now you're prepared financially to buy a house. Yeah. So you know at least you were. It seems like your your overall savings rate was at least still something, and you yeah. were still accumulating wealth. Can you, can you walk us through maybe what your uh, financial portfolio and decisions and lifestyle look like? After the debt was paid off. Yeah.
3: So it's funny. For a while, um, all my investing decisions were whatever dad tells me to do because he did had taught himself a lot about investing so he could make better decisions. And then I, I realized at some point, I think, as we all do, no offense, Mindy, that our parents don't know everything. <laughs> ah. Are you saying that I'm old enough to be your mom? No, you're definitely not old enough to be my mom. Yeah. You're the best. I've done the math. So I, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I realized, oh, they don't know my situation. My dad is investing for himself. He's middle-aged. I need to invest for myself. We have totally different savings goals right now. And I remember it was actually Stephanie O'Connell of Broken Beautiful Life. And she wrote at one point, why aren't women writing more about investing? Why is it that women write about living frugally or living on a for saving for a family why don't women write about investing and it's mostly a male-dominated space and I was like well I'm not I don't write about it because I'm not qualified she goes but why don't you become qualified and I thought who are you to tell me what to do because it made me really
1: yeah
3: and I thought it made me really insecure so I thought I'm just scared I don't know anything those are big scary words and then I started slowly teaching myself actually reading like Money Magazine and Kiplinger's kind of helped because they're they're pretty, uh, not low level, but they're easy to understand. And um, I actually took a financial paraplanner course sponsored by Carl Richards, if you guys ever read his stuff. And I sort of taught myself a little more like, okay, like, you know, you want this much mid cap and this much large. And I did an experiment a while back where I set up for an IRA for my husband through Betterment. And I set up an IRA for myself through Vanguard and I picked like my own Vanguard stocks. And over the year I calculate, like I just, and I was slightly edging him out. So I thought, Oh, okay. I'm doing as well as this robo advisor, which is vetted and a lot of people use and like, and I'm doing the same thing and I'm smart enough to do that. And I think that's been something that I never felt that empowerment before. Like now I feel like I can look at my friend's investments and say, okay, like you're too, I mean, not specifically, but I can say you're too aggressive or you have too many bonds. You know, I feel like I could do that.
2: That's awesome. So what, what do you, what do you kind of, what's your kind of a philosophy then? How are you allocating yourself?
3: I try to be pretty aggressive. I should probably have more bonds, honestly. I'm 30, so I should probably have a few more bonds. But yeah, I just really like Vanguard index funds, U.S., and then I I think a few emerging markets. So I'm not anything, you know, I mean, the basics, just not anything fancy.
1: So you're not picking stocks. You're just choosing index funds to invest in. Yes. Okay.
3: I don't do any kind of stock picking. I definitely don't think I'm interested or educated enough to do that. And I feel pretty comfortable where we're at, but I am hiring a financial planner soon to make sure I am actually diversified enough.
2: Awesome. So one of the things that I want to, I want to touch on is, you know, in the years following your debt pay down, what was your kind of rate of cash accumulation and savings looking like at, at, at in that point? And, did, you know, where you, you moved to Denver, so your rent came yeah. went up, but what would that, what did that look like from a cash flow perspective?
3: I think, I don't remember the exact percentage, but I think we were somewhere at a 25% savings rate. And a part of that was going to saving for a down payment. Mm -hmm. Because we knew eventually, we knew living in Denver was temporary. We knew we'd move back at some point to Indy. So I knew I needed to save for a down payment and moving. And honestly, just buying nice furniture and sort of setting up a home and still saving the
1: 15% for retirement. Okay. So is your projected retirement date and early retirement date
3: so far i've set the goal at 60 which i tell myself well my friends will be retired at 70 so i'll still have a head start <laughs> um right right now at this very moment i've got some big medical like thousands and thousands of medical bills coming up next year so i'm saving the max and an hsa for that so that will probably that's also been a big focus this year so, and that's something I think a lot of people don't talk about is we've got big medical bills in this country. It's going really going to cut into your savings rate.
2: What are you What are you doing for income right now?
3: I am a full time freelance writer, and that's how I make one hundred percent of my income. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that is awesome.
2: What What's something that about your financial journey that we haven't covered yet that you think would be that's important to talk about?
3: You know, it's sort really of what I said earlier, like. Now that I have paid off the debt, someone did the math for me recently of uh, the years that I was paying off student loans so aggressively. We were in a really, really amazing bull market, and if I had invested that money, would I actually have more money now? And that's something that I I almost worry about because I've, I have a good friend who just bought a house, and he said, "Oh, I'm at a, I'm paying my mortgage off early." And I said, "Well, are you saving in an IRA?" And kind of a waffly answer, and I said you have a really, he had like a 3.5% mortgage interest rate. And I said, don't pay your mortgage off for like, you should be investing right now. If you, he's a little bit older than me. If you don't have anything saved for retirement, you need to be investing. But I think, I, I now worry that all the stories of me, other people, you know, I paid off 80 grand in five years. I worry that we're losing the investing portion of it because that's really important. Because it's really easy to pay off. If you have that capital and you have the desire to pay off your student loans, All you just send in the check. But to invest, you have to either set up a 401k or set up an IRA if you don't have that employer option.
2: No, I think that's really good advice. What you're talking about is uh, opportunity cost, right?
3: Yes. And yes. you're
2: you're saying that the opportunity cost of choosing one course of action over another may so have cost you. So single-mindedly, yeah. Yeah, so we had a guest on a recent episode, Craig Curlop. Craig Kerlop. I always get it. I always, I don't know why. You uh, always must name. But Craig, I think, had a a very thoughtful approach to the same problem. He's on a student loan debt. He decided to house hack first, Mm. right? And then he got a second house hack, right? And now is when he's beginning to deploy a lot of money towards the student loans because he went through this this thought process that you're, you're bringing up here where, hey, you know, the house hack in his mind is a really good high probability return. But after a certain point, You know, it makes sense for his overall portfolio to begin focusing on the guaranteed six, seven percent return to go down there. And I think there's a there's a a balanced approach of thinking: Hey, are there really low hanging fruit
0: Mm -hmm. where I can
2: go that I can go after with a very small amount of money that is really high return? And then once I get past that, now how do I go for that risk free, you know, high interest rate return? And I have to
3: say that I spent we all spend a lot of time thinking about what we could have done, what we should have done. When I called my prospective mortgage lender for a pre-approval letter and I said, okay, this is my income. My husband and I are both self-employed. And he said, okay, and how much debt do you have? And I said, none. He goes, no, I mean like student loans, auto loans, personal loans, like a credit card balance. And I said, I don't have any debt. And he said, you have no debt. And I said, I have no debt. And I mean, that made it so much easier. So hindsight is twenty well, twenty. No,
2: I and, think- and you didn't. It's not like you did anything bad. Yeah, you did a great job. You like, like at the end of the day, this, this shows. Hey, what matters is your savings rate and deploying it somehow. Yeah, right? you're going to get to the finish line and be very well off financially if you have a high savings rate and you deploy it in any way that you think is reasonable. You can always fiddle back about whether you were the most optimal or not. That's secondary to what you're. The fundamentals of what you're doing, I
1: think. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think you just have to make a decision and stick with it because questioning yourself is not going to change what you did. Yeah, You're not going to be able to go back in time and decide to keep your student loans and invest more. So you made a decision and there's this big debate. Do I pay off my mortgage or do I keep my mortgage? Well, I'm in the keep your mortgage department, but I can also sleep at night with a mortgage. If having these student loans weighs so heavily on you, then pay them off because being able to sleep at night is way better than having like an extra thousand dollars in your investment account. Well, and sometimes
3: I think, you know, someone asked, what would you do with 100000 I think I could pay off a big chunk of my mortgage and I think I've invested. I've invested right now.
1: I would too. Okay. It's now time for our famous one. <laughs> where can people find out more about you?
3: You can find me. I am currently in the process of finishing a rebrand at ConsciousPoints.com, where I teach people how to be mindful of their money, whether it's about investing or paying off their student loans or whatever they need. If you'd like to hire me as a freelance writer or just look at my portfolio, it's com, And, of course, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at
1: Kuma. Awesome. Okay, Zina, thank you so much for your time today. This was a lot of fun, except that joke that we're editing out. So now everybody's <laughs> going to be contacting you. What joke did you tell? And then you can tell them all personally. Yeah,
2: ask Xina for her <laughs> incredibly inappropriate joke. I didn't uh, write it myself.
1: She did <laughs> warn us that it was inappropriate. I just didn't realize the level of the inappropriateness. Okay, from the FinCon bonus episode of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, this is Mindy Jensen, Scott Trench, and Zena Kumak, and Steve is kicking us out. So bye.